0: I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the Gospel of John. Our text is John 5:31 through 47. Does Jesus claim to be God? That's a trickier question than it may sound. Jesus makes statements that could be taken in different ways. Jesus may refer to himself in the third person as Son of God, but then he also makes the argument that all Jews are, in a sense, sons of God. He calls himself Son of Man, but does he mean Son of Man like Daniel 7, Son of Man, seated on a throne? Or the more frequent Ezekiel Son of Man, simply meaning human being? He says he's one with the Father, but also that we're all one with each other. So when he makes the claim in John five seventeen, My Father is working until now, and I myself am working, we might be excused for not jumping to the same conclusion as those in his audience who angrily charge Jesus of making himself equal with God. But then what claims does Jesus make of himself? Does he deflect the accusation? No, he does not. In the case of John chapter 5, Jesus doesn't hold back. He goes on to make these claims. Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he's given all judgment to the Son. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. An hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Again, for just as a father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself. And the Father gave the Son authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. These are the claims we considered in our last lesson. John records them in John 5, 19-30. What kind of man makes claims like these? Who makes the claim to rightly judge every other human being? Who makes the claim to be able to give eternal life to whomever he wishes? Who makes the claim to have life in himself the way that God has life in himself? C.S. Lewis famously argued that these are the claims of either a lunatic who really believes he can give life to other people, or a fraud, a liar, who's manipulating people for his own agenda, or if, if in fact the claims hold true, he's Lord. This is how Lewis communicated the argument in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. A valid objection to the argument has been proposed. There's a fourth option. A person might claim that Jesus is neither Lord, liar, or lunatic, but merely legend. He's literally too good to be true. If we can't conceive of him as either liar or lunatic, we might conclude he's not real at all. Lewis was aware of this fourth option and gave his opinion on it in a 1950 essay titled, What Are We to Make of Jesus? Justin Taylor points this out in an article for the Gospel Coalition, commenting that Lewis draws on his expertise as a recognized Oxford literary scholar and critic when Lewis writes, Now, as a literary historian, I am perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. Most of the life of Jesus is totally unknown to us, as is the life of anyone else who lived at that time. And no people building up a legend would allow that to be so. Apart from bits of the Platonic Dialogues, There's no conversation that I know of in ancient literature like the fourth gospel. There's nothing, even in modern literature, until about a hundred years ago when the realistic novel came into existence. Jewish leaders heard Jesus' claim to be doing the works of God on the Sabbath, and they rightly interpreted Jesus as making himself out as equal to God. Jesus has gone on to state claims about himself in very strong terms. He claims the power of life. And the authority to judge. He claims to hold your destiny in his hands. Believe in him and you will have eternal life. Do not believe in him and you will be judged and perish. This is the choice before each of us. Is Jesus only a legend? If not, is he a lunatic? If not, is he a liar? If not, he is Lord. And if so, will I yield to him? Jesus does not complete his claims without giving support to the claims. He goes on to call four witnesses that support him. He calls on the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of his works, the witness of the Father, and the witness of Moses. This call of witnesses is recorded in our text for this lesson, John five thirty-one 31-47. If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life." I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hopes. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus prefaces his call of witnesses with this statement, If I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. I think there are two ways we can take that. If we take Jesus as speaking in terms of a court of law, this doesn't mean that his testimony given alone is false. It means it can't be counted as true under Jewish law. The mosaic requirement for more than one witness is stated in numbers 3530 Deuteronomy 17:7 and Deuteronomy 19:15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses a matter shall be confirmed. These are witnesses for the prosecution. Jesus is following the same rule for the defense. Though instead of giving two or three witnesses he gives four. Jesus might not have been speaking only about the legal requirement when he said, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. We could also understand Jesus as saying that any claim to equality with God must be backed up by the witness of the Father and the witness of the Scripture. If the claim is not in harmony with such witnesses as these, but stands alone on its own, it must necessarily be false. Any true claim must be in agreement with the testimony of the Father and the testimony of the Bible. One witness we expect is the witness of a forerunner, an Elijah figure. The prophets say that a forerunner will come. And this is the first witness Jesus calls. In fact, all four of the gospel writers quote Isaiah 43 to 5, where Isaiah predicts one who will announce the coming of God Here's the quote. This is the way Luke puts it. This is Luke chapter 3, 3 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the ways of the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked will become straight and the rough roads smooth and all flesh will see the salvation of God. In John's gospel, John the Baptist himself quotes Isaiah 43, when Jews come to ask who he claims to be. The only claim John will make about himself is that he is a voice of one crying in the wilderness. So Jesus here calls John the Baptist as a witness. He says, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. You've sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. But the testimony which I receive is not from man, But I say these things so that you may be saved. He was the lamp that was burning and was shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Two quick clarifications about the testimony of John. First, Jesus doesn't depend on the testimony of John or any other human witness to establish the truthfulness of his claims. They might support the truthfulness. They do not establish Man does not determine truth or define God. So Jesus says, the testimony I receive is not from man. The value of John's testimony is for these people to help people who have believed in John or heard John to come to believe what already is true about Jesus. It's not true because John said it. It is true and John said it. Second, Jesus calls John a lamp that was burning and shining. You know, the Gospel writer said in one 8 that John was not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. Now he says that John is a lamp, a light shining brightly. You know, which is it? Is he the light or is he not the light? The distinction, and as I've said this before, is something like the difference between the sun and the moon. Jesus himself is the one true light. He is the source of truth. What light we have is a reflection, like the moon. It's not our own light. It's a reflection of, Of him off of us. We're not the source of truth. We do not define truth. We recognize truth and we communicate truth. We point others to the source of truth. We can help light a way to Jesus, but ultimately, Jesus is the light. He is the one who uniquely knows the truth because he is in unique relationship with the Father. Jesus must reveal himself. After calling John the Baptist as a witness, Jesus calls his own works as witness. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me, the Father has sent me. Testify about me, that the Father has sent me. This is why John calls them signs, because they point us to Jesus' true nature, while also affirming his teaching. Does Jesus have the authority to judge and the power to give life? You know What would help us believe that this is true? Well, a man who can heal a sick son or raise up a lame man, that's the kind of man that might have the power of life, you know, especially if these types of miracles were foretold by God as the types of miracles that the Messiah would do. I've already quoted uh, Isaiah 35, 5-6 to in an earlier lesson. In light of the healing of the lame man, it seems fitting to quote the same prophecy again, but with a little more context. This is Isaiah 35, 2b through 6. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted, strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. Isaiah declares that when the salvation of God comes, his people will see his glory in miracles of healing, healing of the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. These are the signs that will accompany the Messiah. Jesus tells his audience, pay attention to what I'm doing. Accept my works as witnesses to the truthfulness of my claims. Jesus next calls God the Father as his witness. And the Father who sent me, he has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. The witness of the Father is greater than the witness of works, though also more personally experienced. At the baptism of Jesus, God the Father affirmed Jesus. The testimony of God is objective, not depending on any human being, and yet there's this problem that the testimony of the Lord is not heard or received because our hearts are dark, because we're dead to the voice of God, even though His witness is the one that counts most. It's a witness that doesn't impact us unless he opens our eyes to hear and to see. So not everyone was able to, to understand the voice of God or to hear the voice of God. The authoritative, objective record of God's word that the Jews should accept, rather than, than a subjective voice that's inside of them, they should accept the written words of Scripture. And that's the fourth witness that Jesus calls You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that testify about me. And you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here's a great irony of human religion. He says, you search the scripture because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me, and you're unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. The Jewish audience of Jesus is going to the right source of truth to find out how to fill the craving in their soul for true life. They're going to the Bible. And yet even looking in the exact right place, they cannot see, they cannot find what they're searching for. Though lack of biblical knowledge is a significant contributor to human darkness regarding moral and spiritual truth, education is not the number one problem. The corruptness of the human heart is the number one problem. There are men and women among the Jewish community in religious studies departments in the liberal Christian church who know the Bible and don't receive Jesus. They don't see God. Jesus gives us indication here about how the corrupt human soul interacts with biblical truth to lead some very religious people down a false road, when Jesus says, "I do not receive glory from men," he's implying that this is, on the other hand, exactly what they are seeking. Their study of the Bible has at root a motive of self-glory. And Jesus goes on to charge that they do not have the love of God in them. So that's in the that's in line with the motive of self-glory. It's about me and my glory, not about love for God. If religion is about receiving honor or glory from God and man, it's not about honoring God. It's I might honor God as a way to get to something. I might worship God or profess love for God or serve God, but if the motive is to receive honor for my goodness or recognition of my worship or to get something back to God, some reward for my goodness, the motive is not love for God. It's love for me. My prof- best love for God comes out of a heart for myself. I want to be recognized as good by God and men. I want honor and I want reward. Jesus further charges that this heart motive for self-glory is reflected in the behavior of his religious opponents as they receive one another based on the honor that they've accrued in society. Jesus' miraculous work should at the very least move these men to consider whether he is in fact from God. In this, Nicodemus proved a better example. He may not have understood Jesus either, but at least he began to pay attention. He didn't dismiss Jesus or seek a way to shut Jesus down without considering whether in fact Jesus truly is from God. But these men are not concerned with the truth about Jesus unless he honors them as they believe they deserve to be honored. He's not willing to give them that. His teaching does not affirm their religious honor, their rules, their etiquette, and so they refuse him. They consider him an enemy to their status. They presume that they have a secure and stable position with God. They don't need somebody like Jesus. Rejecting Jesus, they continue to give honor to one another based on their human system of honor. Honor in the sense that I am using it is defined by social and religious norms in culture. It's kind of the sociological definition for for honor. We have our own cultural system of validation that makes us feel honorable or worthwhile. Oh, you've graduated from university. You know, good for you. Or, oh, you have a doctoral degree. Wow. Or your children are successful. Or you're the head of your own company. Or you're an athlete, or you belong to that church, or you give to that charity. Wow, you've read the Bible all the way through this year. That's awesome. Or you give, you gave your summer serving the poor, or you're an elder in your church, and on and on. And some of the activities and achievements that confer honor in our culture really are honorable deeds. It's good stuff. Some God doesn't care about at all. Either way, the motive behind accruing the honor that comes from society is not love for God. It's a seeking of validation. We want to feel good about ourselves, to feel like we have value, to feel better than some people approved by other people. We want the rewards we deserve. Jesus rejects that human system of value. And he's telling, he's telling his audience, if that's what you're in the Bible for, if that's why you're spending all this time understanding the words of Moses then you are reading Moses and missing life. The Jews of his day convinced themselves that they were seeking glory for God's sake. Jesus tells them that they were seeking their own glory. Paul says something similar in Romans 10, 2-3, For I test about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they do not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Jesus rejects their very basis of self-satisfaction. They believe they've understood the law of Moses as a system of works, which, when executed properly, establishes their sense of worth and success. Jesus rejects that understanding of Mosaic religion. He tells them that he has no need to accuse them, since they're accused by the very words of Moses upon which they are trying to make their own claims. Jesus tells him in verse 46 to 47, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is saying that you cannot have correctly understood the function of the law and the heart behind the law if you reject me. If you've correctly understood the law, then you will have love for and insight into the nature of God which would then lead you to gladly accept me. He says Moses wrote about me. What's Jesus talking about? You know, where do we see Jesus in the books of Moses? Now, this isn't an abstract claim. John has actually already given us at least four examples so far in his gospel. So if you were to think back through John starting in chapter 1 through chapter 4, when does John refer to Moses in reference to Jesus? You know, what comes to your mind? Where's Moses in John? So I'll give you four. The first is at the very beginning of the gospel in the first five verses. In the beginning was the word. All things came into being by him. You know, John writes of the beginning, of the making of all things, of word and light and life. You know, he's linking Jesus with the creation with the first verses of Genesis chapter 1, we may not have recognized the presence of Jesus in creation, but John assures us that he was certainly present and active. In the second half of the prologue, John shifts to Exodus, and he writes this in one fourteen and 17, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. John brings together the story of God's glory in dwelling the tabernacle, that's in Exodus 40, and the story of God revealing his name in Exodus 34. John brings both of those together because God's name is his true character, and his glory is the display of that character. So his name and his glory go together, and they're made visible in Jesus Christ. The glorious character described to Moses in words is now revealed in the flesh in Jesus Christ. Well, maybe getting into something that should have been more more obvious in the Old Covenant, the third reference came in John 1 29 when the Baptist saw Jesus and linked him to the Passover. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Jews should have recognized that the, the Passover Lamb was a uh, a substitute that doesn't really take away sin. You know, The ritual is that the blood of the Passover lamb was applied to the door of each Jewish home, that the angel of wrath might pass over those families. And the original message from Moses was that the Israelites had not escaped the judgment of God any more than the Egyptians. The Egyptians deserve judgment, but so do the Israelites for their own sin. So by faith, they had to trust God to save them. But that lamb didn't take away their sin. It only serves as a foreshadowing of something else, of some great salvation, of a true price that must be paid. Jesus is the true lamb that they should have been looking for, waiting for, whose death will pay for the sin of the world. The fourth reference we have already in the Gospel of John is in John three fourteen to 15 As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. The curse justly deserved by man for sin is death. Jesus will be lifted up on a cross to take that curse on himself. When Moses wrote these things, he was writing about something that must be done in the future. He was writing about Jesus. And we could go on to consider references, many, many more references, not recorded by John. We could mention the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that his seed will be a blessing to the nations. Or the cutting of covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 which indicates that God has decided to take the curse of death on himself. Or the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, where God gives another lamb, a ram, in place of Isaac, a substitute. Or the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, where the blood of one goat covers over the law and another goat removes sin far from the people. Or Deuteronomy 18, where Moses foretells that another prophet like him will rise up in Israel. Or Deuteronomy 30, where God promises after exile to bring his people back and do an internal work of spiritual regeneration in them so that they might love God with heart and soul. In all of these texts, Moses is pointing ahead to Jesus Christ. And this is just Moses. We're not even getting into all the prophecies. This is the law. So these are the claims of Jesus, that just as the Father has the power to give life, so also the Son has the power to give life to whomever he wishes, And just as God has authority to judge men, so also the Son has authority to judge all men. Whoever believes in him will be given eternal life, and whoever does not believe will perish in eternal judgment. Jesus has called his witnesses to support his claims. He's called on the prophesied forerunner. He's called on his miraculous works. He's called on God the Father, and he's called on the Holy Scriptures. These are his witnesses. And just like the audience of old, each one of us faces a choice. We must ask, is this man only a legend, or is he real? And if he's real, is he out of his mind to claim power over life and judgment? Is he a lunatic, or is he sane? And if he's sane, how can he make such claims? Is he a fraud trying to manipulate me? Is he a liar? But if he's neither legend, nor lunatic, nor liar... What choice is left? He must be Lord. And if so, what then? Will you bow down to him and worship? Will you follow where he leads? If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of the Gospel of John, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.